This week for Columbia's Data Science Society podcast, we will be interviewing Professor Nikul Verma. Nikul Verma is a professor at Columbia University who works on various aspects of machine learning problems and high-dimensional statistics. He's especially interested in exploiting the intrinsic structure of data to design effective learning algorithms. His theoretical work in distance-preserving embeddings is currently state-of-the-art. He's also considered one of the best lecturers in the computer science department by his students. In the following interview, we will discuss topics including Professor Verma's career path, his tips and advice to students, his outlook towards ML for the near-term future, as well as a discussion about his work in distance-preserving manifolds. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so I just added that just in case I needed like an intro into something. But I guess we can begin with the questions now. Hi, so, um, thanks, William, uh, for introducing me. Pleasure to have you. Or pleasure to... Or what should I, not pleasure to have you. <laughs> Generally, I'm the one who does these things, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Hmm. I guess uh, we can begin with our first question. Uh, uh, would you like to tell us... Uh, I guess we, we uh, as students, we're always interested in like how our professors became professors. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your career path and the decisions you made to get to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. So I can I can kind of start from like what kind of piqued my interest in computer science and then specifically uh, in my specialty, uh, which happens to be machine learning. Uh, so uh, so I guess I was fortunate enough uh, to be uh, uh, exposed to computers from kind of early age. And now, now I know kids these days are almost always exposed to computers, like since the, since since birth, I guess. But you know, yeah. uh, in in my days, uh, 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 you know, so we actually uh, like my dad used to use a computer, obviously, but I was not kind of allowed to touch it. Uh, so kind of formally, I uh, you know I got introduced to you know uh, computers, and by formally, I actually mean like actually doing programming uh, uh, when I was basically in middle school, so like sixth grade onwards. And uh, so, uh, so kind of my, 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 my whole training with computers was, was with that. And I got more and more interested. I, I started developing, uh, you know, uh, basically professional quality softwares uh, by, by uh, uh, high school. Essentially, so I was helping out in uh, uh, in um, developing softwares for for uh, you know small companies at that time. So you so you did it like like Paul Allen, Bill Gates, almost like you were developing <laughs> software for like high schools in order to get into like the classes that you wanted, or almost like for for dams, hydroelectric plants, or something. Uh, not the second one, but definitely the first one. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty related uh, one. Uh, so uh, I, I, you know, my high school has the thing. You know, the seniors can kind of go home early if their if their last uh, period happens to be like a free period. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, having the entire kind of database of, you know, whether a senior is allowed to uh, leave campus because their last period is happens to be free or not, right? So, you know, they, they actually scan your ID 
uh, and then that that scanner then will kind of uh, you know the, the the number the student id is read it will kind of query the database it will see whether the student is in fact allowed has a uh, parent given the permission and whatnot and then the student can actually leave uh, campus or you know come in late without penalty if their first period happens to be uh, you know the free period so, so you're saying that as a professor like one of the first things that you did as a in computer science is try to figure out how to do less school or spend less time in school basically that huh. that that has been my motto all the time like how should I put it? Work smart, not hard, right? So, yeah. So you know, yeah. So this is important. Anyway, so uh, you know, so uh, so software engineering, you know, principles and uh, programming in general, um, you know, I, I got to learn uh, kind of uh, whole throughout high school just because I was interested in computer science in general. Uh, I did the usual route. I also did my AP classes. Uh, you know, so it was in Java, like, just like how it is these days. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then basically, I, I joined uh, UC San Diego. That's where I did my undergrad and grad studies uh, as a as a computer science major. And so mm-hmm. there, basically, you know, uh, the different uh, subfields within computer science, let's say, uh, operating systems and computer architecture and whatnot, all of them I actually found very very interesting. But, you know, the thing which really piqued my interest was when I actually started taking classes in algorithms and classes in, um, you know, machine learning. So AI and machine learning in my undergrad. And so then basically I was kind of gravitating towards, you know, how can I actually make programs which are in some sense uh, kind of self-learn, you know, whatever the holy grail of AI is supposed to be. And so, so that always kind of piqued my interest, like how can the program self-modify itself? And so, so that's how I actually started off uh, in, in machine. During like your summers, did you do any internships or anything? Or, or like were there specific classes that you were really motivated for? Like you said, typically you like theoretical, like algorithms development or machine learning classes. This is more suited to like almost like people uh, what are students inside like currently in the cs kind of curriculum that are trying to really focus in on exactly what they want to do in the future like what are those like key events and what do they look like yeah so i guess the questions there there are multiple questions there right there was a question on internship there was a question on you know uh how did i how did i started doing theory specifically and whatnot right uh so uh so the so I guess the way I would put it is, so I have been programming since, you know, for a while, uh, you know, as, as middle school, as a high schooler and whatnot. So uh, uh, as a risk of sounding more jaded or whatnot, you know, the charm of programming, like just, just the regular programming, in some sense went away. You know, by by the time I was, uh, you know, because I have been programming maybe for almost, you know, five, seven years by that time, maybe even more uh, by by the time I'm in like, you know, in, in college. And so uh, so basically the, the analysis of a program or as you call it, analysis of algorithms and whatnot, that was something kind of a new aspect to computer science for me. And so that's how I actually started kind of gravitating towards it. And so it was basically like, okay, 
you know, you're programming fine, but you know, why does it work? What kind of guarantees can you get, right? So you, you can kind of get something extra out of it, right? You will have more confidence in your program. And so, so that's how I actually, you know, that always interested me, uh, you know, in my kind of college career. Because, you know, in some sense, programming, luckily for me, came easy to me. And so, you know, through experience or whatnot, right? So, so this was the kind of interesting aspect. Okay. Now, in terms of internships, basically, uh, as an undergrad, I actually did not do any internship. Uh, <laughs> so I did get internship. Uh, I got a Microsoft internship. I, I still remember, but uh, uh, you know, uh, being an international student, essentially, somehow my uh, my paperwork for work authorization did not go through, and so I was super pissed. But but you know, at the end of the day, the internship did not happen. So. So that was one reason I ended up not doing an internship in undergrad. Right. What did you um, do instead that summer? No, I just went back home, enjoyed my enjoyed my you know you know summer, and and then I guess I didn't also have too many opportunities because of uh, I I finished my uh, uh, undergrad in three years, and mm-hmm. so you know so that shaves off another year of internship. So. Wow. So I guess like. Uh... And then what kind of do you think mentors really helped you along on the along the way towards, I guess, your eventual like uh, journey into grad school and then maybe even past? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, so I would say uh, so definitely my uh, Ph.D. advisor, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I did my undergrad and grad school from the same university, UC San Diego. And uh, so so the story basically is this, right? So. Um, so this is the first time I'm in the algorithms class, like algorithms is offered. Uh, before that, you know, I have some vague idea about what algorithms is, but, you know, this is the first time I'm formally taking algorithms, right? So, and this uh, new professor who has kind of recently joined UC San Diego from UC Berkeley, uh, his name happens to be Shanjoy Das Gupta. Uh, and so, uh, who, who is a very famous figure in, in algorithms, uh, in case in case uh, you're wondering. So anyway, so so this this new professor has joined, and uh, this is one of his first uh, uh, classes he's offering. And I just happened to be lucky that I was taking taking the class. And so you know, he starts lecturing. You know, you know, a week goes by, another week goes by, and so on. And and I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. Okay. And so, uh, so then I, you know, basically barge into his office one day and I'm like, okay, I want to do research. And so he was like, okay, uh, why don't you kind of build your algorithm skills a little bit more, your math skills a little bit more, and then we can, we can maybe work on a project. So, uh, so, so that's basically what, uh, um, uh, kind of interested me in that field a lot more, uh, and uh, he actually is a phenomenal mentor. Okay? Now everybody has a kind of a different uh, flavor to like how they mentor, and uh, Shanghai's flavor generally is uh, a little bit more hands-offish. Okay, now that could be a good thing or a bad thing. 
okay and so uh, the good thing basically is that you can basically work on any problem you want right means he will let you explore uh, the field uh, you know whatever you are kind of interested it will not it will never be in his case it will never be like okay this is what i am interested in i being the the supervisor okay this is what i am interested in and you know if you are not doing this just go away right so he will basically make it so that it will be interesting to both parties like him and you and then uh, and do that so he is definitely uh, a a great mentor i have had and i was lucky to be his phd student and so he he mentored me throughout for that as well uh the other mentor uh, which uh, i i really value actually is uh, my supervisor when i was in a, a neuroscience institute doing machine learning type work and so this particular person is kristen branson um, uh, again a famous personality um, she is absolutely phenomenal absolutely and so the thing which i have basically learned from her which which i i, I really value now is uh, so with shanjoy uh, my phd mentor i i was essentially trained to do theory work right means he's a, he's a theoretician and what not and uh, so so sometimes when you are just working on theory uh, you you tend to kind of detach from reality okay so so generally your work goes like this you assume certain you know things like okay uh, you you're creating a let's say a statistical model or something like that so you're going to make some assumptions okay maybe the world works this way this way this way and under this assumptions you will try to prove something or say something about your models provide some sort of guarantees that my model is going to work perfect under this in some sense vacuum of you know whatever the assumptions you how good or how bad those assumptions are in terms of reality you kind of sometimes don't care about that means it would be good if it is closer to reality but that's not a you know a strict requirement uh what kristen's approach is my 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 mentor when i was at a neuroscience she basically uses theory for support so she will basically the, the the center stage or you know the center piece of a particular problem is the actual problem you will never or she will force you never to deviate from that okay in this particular case it is understanding the kind of the workings of a brain so you know whatever kind of data you are getting and so on uh in this case it's neuroscience data and so so that is that is the data you have to deal with okay so she will force you to adjust the model so that it is basically capturing as much as possible reality as possible right so it gives you a better appreciation what i have learned from her it gives you a better appreciation of you know ground your theory with the actual reality okay which which i feel like you know sometimes people are lacking if they are purely theoretical or the other way around if they are purely practical they they have complete dis, uh, disregard for theory like like okay whether it works or not work i don't really care but there it is i see so it's like bridging the gap between a more theoretical model with certain assumptions and an experimental data 
which might not match it, but you do your best to basically include maybe more realistic terms in order to match the experimental data. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually helps theory itself. I have, I have seen that too. So, so you can, you can come up with better theoretical models as well. So. Certainly. Yeah, definitely. I see this sometimes because I think I do a little bit of work in, in like experiment fitting basically with two experimental data. And, uh, mm-hmm. And I feel like this also, this, this insight that you're mm-hmm. providing is really useful for data scientists in general who have to deal with adjusting prepackaged kind of um, algorithms or, or models that have been developed into trying to match into some kind of experimental data they're presented with. Okay, so why don't you, uh, so you definitely tell us about your career path into college and basically into grad school. What happened after your grad school? Like, how did you end up eventually becoming a professor? And what decisions were made along that way? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, uh, so, uh, so I, I did uh, um, uh, undergrad and grad school, uh, like, essentially in one go. Like, mm-hmm. I did not take a break. And so, so after that, uh, so, so during, uh, during grad school, I, I, I did have an opportunity to do a few internships. And uh, all of them were research-oriented internships. So, uh, so I have done uh, a research internship in Qualcomm. Uh, I have done it in Yahoo. Uh, I've been in Yahoo Research, and I always had like a very uh, positive experience uh, in terms of the kind of the research uh, which is happening in the industry. So, so once I graduated uh, with a PhD, I, I thought that I will basically start with doing uh, uh, research in the industry. And so mm-hmm. I actually got an opportunity to join uh, Amazon. So I was, a, uh, I was in the kind of the fraud analytics group at Amazon. And so basically every single order which you uh, place on Amazon kind of goes through this kind of a fraud check. And uh, because, as you might imagine, Amazon is a big company, uh, you know, there's a very high volume of orders. Uh, doing this kind of a risk assessment on the order, as in uh, what is the risk in fulfilling this order, whether it should be, uh, whether it should be fulfilled or not, uh, cannot be done manually, right? It means you need some sort of an automated system. And so, uh, so, so we, as in the entire team of, uh, you know, fraud analysts, essentially, uh, who are basically uh, machine learning specialists, uh, we, uh, we were kind of designing models. So, uh, so I did that uh, for, uh, for basically around a year or so. And uh, the, it, for me personally, that was a little bit unsatisfying experience, I would say. And so. yeah, exactly. And so the reason for that basically was uh, it it always felt like that uh, just because of the volume of orders you have to kind of deal with all the time, uh, we we ended up doing more kind of uh, applying off the shelf type of techniques, and uh, we really did not have time. And you know, it might have changed now, but but at least when I was uh, there. Uh, to kind of and when was that about like year wise? Uh, so we are talking about 2012. I see. Uh, so 2012, 2013, something like that. And so, uh, so uh, just because dealing with the volume of orders and the urgency, if there is a fraud ring, uh, which is discovered that you want to squash that particular fraud ring, and then you don't want them to extract more money and so on. 
so uh, so you were always kind of applying off the shelf techniques rather than you know uh, being able to sit down and as i said right properly model uh, you know a kind of a theoretical model which will be practically kind of useful as well uh, for the particular task first for my own personal taste it was too applied uh, for my taste essentially mm. so then i uh, essentially pivoted from there uh to a this uh, neuroscience institute which i kind of briefly alluded to before mm-hmm. um and so i was a uh, basically a machine learning specialist there uh and so the way uh, this neuroscience institute work which is an academic institute essentially uh, just no um just no uh, classes okay mm-hmm. so so they just uh, purely do research uh is their kind of grandiose goal is to kind of understand the workings of a brain of course that's a holy grail for for neuroscientists right, right? and so uh so this place is called uh genelia research uh which basically comes under hhmi which is harvard hughes medical institute i see yeah? and so 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 their their kind of ultimate goal essentially is you know to understand the workings of the brain and so what they are essentially do is they bring in scientists of all sorts okay so of course the center stage is taken by the biologists especially the neuroscientists but uh, you know other kinds of biologists as well uh, like systems biologists uh, cell biologists and so on so so biologists kind of take the center stage but they will also pool in resources of other types of scientists for example uh imaging needs to be done right so mm-hmm. imaging of let's say the brain and so on so they will actually call in optical physicists mm-hmm. again you know like top of their field and essentially to design a you know custom made microscope which can actually image the brain uh in a in the kind of the best possible way which can actually help in uh in doing whatever you know the, the, the you know scientific really want they will call in the chemist let's say a synthetic chemist to kind of uh develop new molecules and dyes and so on which can actually image uh how the neurons are firing by tagging the 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 molecule the the marker this is called the gfp the green fluorescent protein mm-hmm. which gets which gets uh, attached with the actual uh the signal which is sent so that you can actually capture it by this these microscopes which are being developed i imagine all this data is getting collected and somebody has to actually uh, be able to systematically analyze this data so they are also calling in the machine learning experts right so so that's that's the that's how i kind of got roped in if you want to say but i love the place so i won't say roped in as in you know uh you know so so that's how i actually got interested and uh, and uh, in some sense it was a lot more fulfilling because you are actually being part of the kind of a larger scientific discovery i see so 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 i i i stayed there for a while i actually was there for four years uh, so up till essentially 2017 okay and then uh, then basically uh, me i i still love the place and i have all the kind of the connections there and i still kind of do the same type of uh, uh, research work with them uh, but i thought as a kind of a, my own personal professional development uh, i can i cannot take like a lead role in this kind of a workplace because 
the biologist actually takes the center stage, obviously because it's a neuroscience institute, right? So, yes. so if I have my own personal research agenda, okay, mm-hmm. maybe I want to analyze some specific type of a model, uh, which may or may not help the biologist, uh, I will not have like full freedom to explore, right? Just just because, you know, it's, it's not related to Right. So, so I thought it was actually time that, you know, as I'm kind of gaining seniority, as I'm gaining more experience, that actually to have my own, uh, direct my own reason. Right. So, you know, I was looking at like university positions and, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to kind of join Columbia and then, you know, Columbia gave me a job. I think, right. And so I was like, yes, I will, I will, I will join. Yes. So, Columbia in the city of New York. And the city of New York. Absolutely. And so, uh, so that's how basically that that's how my kind of career trajectory towards professorship happened to be. I see. So I, uh, I guess like I, along the way, I wanted to ask like, mm-hmm. so the difference between Amazon and this this other job, this neuroscience research kind of job, mm-hmm. it was more the scientific impact. That's what you 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 gained. Like it made you feel more fulfilled. Absolutely, yeah. And as I said, right. So. Uh, uh, Amazon, you may know, is a, considered as a very high-pressure workplace. Right. Okay. Now, you know, some of it is kind of, uh, uh, you know, is you know, obvious in the sense, like, of course, means you know, you're you're dealing with live orders and whatnot. Uh, of course, it will be high pressure in that regard. But uh, in some sense, uh, Amazon actually tries to give you a lot of work in the sense like there is no kind of a down uh, moment when you are at amazon right. okay now that kind of a workplace you know you know many people can thrive there and they enjoy that mm-hmm. but uh, in my personal opinion uh, research specifically is not conducive in that kind of an environment mm. right for research you need like more calmness around you, right? Because, you know, you may not get the solution. There is, you don't know whether the solution exists, right? You're mm-hmm. trying to figure out the actual solution, right? Uh, and and in the process, you may fail multiple times. And so, uh, so basically what I felt in some sense was you, you really did not get time to like sit down and think about a problem, mm-hmm. which I personally enjoy. So, so, so not only that it was more fulfilling in terms of what you are doing, mm-hmm. okay, like fraud analytics versus, you know, uh, like more core scientific discovery, but also this, this uh, time thing, which I'm talking about that, you know, that you can actually sit down and you can actually, in some sense, meditate over a particular problem, right? You are actually stuck at a very hard problem, but rather than coming up with some sort of a heuristic, uh, you know, half-baked solution, mm-hmm. okay? Because just because you don't have time and these fraudsters, you have to you have to deal with them, right? Uh, here you can actually sit down. There is less of a time pressure, or I should say, lot of freedom, uh, and then you can actually sit down and come up with a kind of a more proper solution, I which I personally value. So, so research was better as also a personality fit, not a, not and yeah. fulfillment fit. Exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little joke here. Even with all of Amazon's okay. fulfillment centers, you couldn't feel fulfilled. Mm. <laughs> I tried. 
Yeah, no, no, I like it. So. Well, you told a joke earlier before during our break. Uh, do you want to repeat it while I was while I was saving? Do you want to repeat that joke? <laughs> yeah. So so uh, so our host William here, he was he was trying to save something so that you know he doesn't lose uh, uh, you know whatever work in progress he has. Right. And so um, so this is a more kind of a programming humor type of a joke. Uh, if 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 once you become kind of a programmer, basically, I'm giving you a context for the joke. <laughs> All right, yeah, you can set up. You can set up. Take as long as you need. So, so the so so that the, the, the kind of the joke will eventually make sense to even even kind of non-programmers. Right. So one thing you will see programmers do all the time is, you know, they, they write like a few snippets of code and then they just keep on clicking like the save button all the time. You know, somehow they, they are really, they really want to like save their work because, you know, you know, somehow some problem might occur and they may lose the work. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, think about it like writing an essay for your this thing, right? How many times did you press save, right? How many versions of the of the same essay you have, right, for, for your writing classes Anyway, that's the premise. Just keep that in mind, right. okay? And so here is a joke, okay? So I was just offhandedly, and it's kind of a lame joke, but whatever, right? So I was offhandedly asking um, uh, uh, William, uh, do you know why Jesus is a better programmer than Satan? Okay? So I'll let you think about it, given the past context which I just said. And the punchline now is, because Jesus saves, and that's why he's a better poet. I'll add some music to that, like, but I'm, you know, some kind of. It'll be great. Sure, sure. But that that joke, it was it was good. It was perfect for the moment. Uh, yeah, just wanted to capture that. <laughs> sure. Uh, So we've seen how Professor Verma made his way to Columbia from high school to college to PhD studies to his experience at Amazon and Janela. In this next section of the podcast, we're going to ask him about how he interacts with the Columbia community as a professor, a lecturer, and a researcher. Um, we should probably move on to more questions. Uh, sure, any questions? Yes. Okay. So I think we got the career path. We have we saw how you got it to Columbia and and the reasons for why. Now let's talk about what you've done at, um, in Columbia. Um, so I guess people. So you, you mean other than partying? Oh yeah, of course, of course. You know, you have to you have to have some down. You like you have to actually work too at this place. So I guess. You know? No, no. That, the, the, the here is the thing. Mm-hmm. The, the, you give all the work to the students, so students are working all the time. Right. This frees up time for you, so you can party. You so are in the professor. Are you saying professors party a lot? Well, uh, it's a it's a secret. Maybe I shouldn't have disclosed, but but <laughs> maybe so. All right. I'm gonna ask all future professors uh, the <laughs> amount they party, the percentages, because if it's a, it's more than the students, then yeah, yeah. this is crazy. This is. Uh, we're the first to report this breaking news <laughs> but uh but yeah okay so let's say they didn't party all the time i guess one of the main things they do is lecture a lot mm. so you're widely considered widely considered Ooh, wow. <laughs> one of the better Hopefully lecturers a good thing. Hopefully a good thing. oh yeah definitely it's a good thing one of the better lecturers in the cs department you know maybe only a, a very small percentage of people will 
will not attend your class slash sleep in your class. You know, they, they come for you as well as the content. They come for you. <laughs> so, so okay. what kind of advice? But, but I, do want to, I do want to interject and I mm-hmm. want to complain. One of the better professors? What's going on? Why not the best professor? All right. You know, <laughs> I'm going to say, well, the question I have down here is as one of the best professors. So why, why one of the best? Anyway. Okay. How about this? Yes, I, as the kidding. best lecturer in the CS department. Big title. Not the whole universe. Anyway, okay. That's a good <laughs> we'll go with the CS department. This is more like, what kind of advice would you offer other, you know, maybe subpar lecturers? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> These guys are going to kill me now. Or rather like, what do you keep in mind as you teach? Maybe future people are trying to explain things, concepts, or or, or, or trying to teach like their peers, other kind of things, uh, yeah. or even maybe hosting a session for uh, high school programs. Or need mm-hmm. to explain something in better detail. Like, what sure. kind of advice would you offer as you yeah. know, giving it to the best so, lecturer? Like, yeah. So means to, to, I guess, to put your question more simply, like, like what makes a kind of a reasonable uh, lecturer, right? Like, right. how can you be a better orator in some sense? Yeah. Right? Um, so, uh, you know, means so, so you you are trying to communicate some sort of scientific technical content. Right means it, it does not need to be specifically scientific. I mean technical in whichever field you are. Right, it mm-hmm. could be it could be history, but the, you know whatever the technical content in history happens to be. Right, like whatever the core subject uh, requires. Right, so so uh, my personal experience has been that uh, if you cannot explain something in simple terms, then it is actually the fault of the speaker and not the fault of the listener okay Mm -hmm. and what fault am i talking about the fault i'm basically saying is perhaps okay and of course for different subject matters it would be a little different perhaps you actually yourself don't understand the subject that well Mm -hmm. right so I won't say it like you should be able to explain it to a five-year-old because, you know, let's be frank, the f- a five-year-old doesn't really have that much of a vocabulary, that mm-hmm. much of understanding. But, uh, but you know, means at least by high school, you know, people people have some, some sort of a, you know, decent understanding of, of, of how things kind of work, right? Means you can actually start explaining, right? So, right. so if, if, if you're having a hard time explaining in simple terms okay? and the simple part is more important okay mm-hmm. uh as in don't use the technical jargon don't use extra fluff and whatnot uh then perhaps it's a reflection of like perhaps you yourself don't actually understand okay? and so if you can focus then offline of course right if you can focus then on how would you go about explaining something in simpler terms? Then it it kind of ropes other people in, in the sense like you know they can they can they can they can yeah. understand it better. They can uh, you know be able to maybe explain it to others. Totally. This have you ever heard of the Feynman technique? Like that, uh, there was once a physicist who also had a very similar line of thought. And I think Absolutely. this, yeah, yeah everybody, this matches very well. Yeah, yeah. So, I me, mean, I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't watched the Feynman lectures, but I have definitely heard of it. So, yeah. so, so this yeah. is the trick. This is the one yeah. trick you would offer as advice to others. Absolutely, yeah. 
and uh, the other one basically is make connections okay mm-hmm. if you can relate it to something me you me it does not need to be funny if you can't do like a funny joke or something like that but but connections in the sense i'll give you an example okay and uh, uh this happens almost all the time uh and it would be a more of a technical example just because that's what i know uh um so when i or anybody uh, first gets introduced with let's say linear algebra which basically talks about what matrices are and how they operate and mm-hmm. both, right so of course you can take the the linear algebra classes uh, to kind of understand how how these things work uh one of the more complicated type of things which you learn in such a class even when it is introduced for the very first time like like it's your first class in linear algebra is this concept of you know eigen decomposition or you know more generally some sort of a spectral decomposition or a singular value yeah that sounds quite hard yeah so uh, absolutely right and so fine what will you do you know of course an exam is coming up you are going to mug up something like you're going to memorize uh, how how this eigen decomposition is done maybe they will give you a 2 by 2 or a 3 by 3 matrix and then you do your eigen decomposition to basically completely do an information dump on the on the exam and then you come out of it and maybe in a week or two you have completely forgot okay now fine you might get your a or a plus or whatever you wish to for okay uh but did you will you be able to remember this piece of information that okay this eigen vector eigen value whatever you were to do uh after 2 3 weeks you will complete this data okay right. and why is, so so i would say that the instructor failed in in transmitting the particular piece of information mm-hmm. and the reason the failure occurred is the reason this particular failure actually occurred is is because more than likely the instructor did not make connections or those connections were not communicated effectively right now if you can maybe relate it to some particular interesting application which the students may be interested in like means maybe you can pick up okay these days machine learning is some hot topic or what not mm-hmm. uh, and and you would uh, if if the instructor for linear algebra just makes a little bit of hint saying that you know these eigen vectors eigen values are actually in fact extremely useful to design smart algorithms right. okay like machine learning it's going to get into your head a little bit more as a student as in you know you, it will pique your interest you are going to listen more carefully then right if you are interested in machine learning obviously right so so and so and uh, and if the if the instructor can make that so i always go for that that kind of a connection within the field of whatever i'm trying to explain. i see so, okay so that's a really good second piece of advice sure. i guess uh one thing we also noticed uh, at least we as in your students i have mm-hmm. taken your class once is that oh, you... twice actually ah twice yes i've sat through <laughs> two classes but uh you really encourage class participation like you you actively yes. choose on individuals some of which will not be named you know you choose on them a lot <laughs> but i guess do you really do you, do you think that how, why do you do that like do you think it really do you think it adds to the overall experience uh so it's it's partially because of me right I me mean, just just run if if you a one sided 
lecture is not in some sense a communication right and uh, uh, it 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 makes the whole experience awkward for me in some sense Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of it is to uh, have like a two-sided conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, it engages students more, but you have to be very careful. You as in the, the instructor has to be very careful that, you know, uh, it should not feel like you are picking on a particular individual, which I know I do. Uh, and uh, But uh, if the way I end up doing is, in some sense, I'm I'm... I'm probing the students in the sense like who may be comfortable being in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Right? And the reason I pick essentially the same people is because I'm, frankly speaking, I'm actually scared picking a random person who mm-hmm. may be more uncomfortable to make them even more uncomfortable, you I know? See. And so, you know, once maybe I have picked somebody and if it, if it feels like that they are communicating well, then they can serve as a proxy for like a representative for the whole class. In mm-hmm. some, right. So so I get to have a conversation. They get to, uh, you know, in some sense, listen to a student's perspective. And so uh, I, I, it's never the case that I'm picking, in some sense, the smartest or the most capable person. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to pick the most, how should I put it, a person who is most comfortable in having a discussion, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and or and who would not mind getting picked on, okay. I will absolutely not, uh, you know, means I, I want people to, in some sense, give me the wrong answer, because that will actually, the people who are listening, who are not actually, you know, actively participating, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to, to realize, oh, this kind of a misconception, not only I have it, but this other person who is actually communicating also has the same misunderstanding uh, about, you know, whatever mm-hmm. we're doing. And so uh, it also then gives me a better idea of, you know, what is going in people's head, what is not going in people's head, whether I should speed up, slow down, change direction, whatever. So so this is always this kind of a fine balance, which which I have. So, so you know, I, I basically, you know, if you, if you really look at it, like in the beginning, uh, lectures, as in, you know, start of the semester or whatnot, right? Questions are a lot more open in the sense, like, I just wait for a response, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't pick on people, or at least I try not to pick on the people, okay? But once people start responding, when when I know, okay, these people want to communicate and the other people want to be more of a, have an audience role rather than a, you know, participant role, then I continue, in some sense, picking on people who, are willing to communicate. At least that's my goal. I don't know whether to accomplish it or not. No, I definitely think the the you helping other people realize that other people have the same misconceptions is really something that I've certainly experienced in your classes. All right. Okay, cool. So another question we wanted to ask, Gordon. Another question uh, from like your classes, like you teach currently uh, four seven seven one machine learning and four seven seven two advanced machine learning or unsupervised machine learning. Um, one question is, uh, let's say, let's say someone wanted to understand these classes, or like wanted, or other. Uh, let me reword this. Usually, sometimes professors want their students to take away at least one thing from their classes. 
you know, like modern analysis, just understand uh, <laughs> uniform continuity or something. Yeah, or some, exactly. <laughs> so it's just like, just do this one thing right. Uh, mm. Or just remember one thing. I mm. guess, what would you recommend? Or like, what would you say is the one thing you should take away from your machine learning classes? Sure, yeah. So means as uh, people may know, you definitely know, my classes are more... Uh, uh, I don't know whether I should use the word notorious or not, but anyway, my classes are known to be uh, more on the theory side, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and this is, in some sense, by design, right? So uh, machine learning is very ubiquitous these days, right? Mm -hmm. Means you can you can take online classes and whatnot, right? Means uh, as you know, uh, Professor Andrew Ings. Uh, uh, from Stanford, essentially, the, the, his, his, his machine learning class is mm -hmm. uh, probably worldwide the most popular one, right? right. Now, because the, because the audience is such a wide audience, is basically the entire you know, uh, world in some sense, um, uh, he has to kind of keep it at a level which is accessible. Mm -hmm. right? so, uh, so the question basically is what... I want somebody to kind of take out of machine learning. Uh, it is not exactly a particular topic. It won't be like, if you know about support vector machines, you're great. Like, like you, 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 you have succeeded in my class. Or if you, if you know about deep learning, you have succeeded in my class or whatever, right? So uh, what I actually want to, is to be able to have the, power to demystify the math behind the machine so whenever the so, so there are two aspects to to you know a machine learning type of a concept right means there is a the kind of the, the actual concept let's say we, we talked about briefly support vector machine right like uh like okay what does it do those kinds of things so that you can actually apply it to your uh, to your uh, problem whatever you want to do prediction of that uh, the other one is basically how the hell does it work right means uh, what's going on under the hood right so again you can get this piece of information like how it works under the hood right means there are books written on it right uh, the problem is the very first time when you encounter the kind of the mathematics behind it, like why it is working, in some sense, it is not accessible to people. As in they look at it, they in some sense get scared by the math. And then, and that in some sense will discourage them to kind of continue further. They will be like, okay, why don't I not look under the hood? I should close the hood and I should just blindly use it or something. Uh, it will give you some level of understanding, right? It will give you some sense like a black box understanding of the of the of how this technique works. But you know, if you wanted to uh, actually be able to use it successfully for your particular problem, uh, like a new problem which you may encounter, it may not be that support vector machines work off the shelf, but maybe some slight modification of that, right? right? And so. The, you know, long story short, what I want out of any of my classes is don't be scared of the math. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I throw people kind of in the deep end in some sense and, and try to, you know, ask them to basically uh, be able to survive and not drown in the math and so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least in the lecture, I try to 
break down all the mathematics, whichever we are encountering. Right? So I may flash like a huge, like complicated formula on, on the projector, you know, on the screen. And then I will say, hold on, rather than completely glossing over it, let's actually break it down and see that in fact, this complicated looking formula is complicated in an artificial sense. It's not really that complicated. Right. If you know how to kind of slice and dice, right? Mm. So, so that's what I want from the students that they become confident whenever they are looking at a complicated machine learning related formula, right? right? That it should be, you know, if they take a breather, they are like, okay, there is a way to consume, understand this formula in a and so if they can do that, then they will have a much better understanding of any technique in machine learning, not just the ones which are they are learning in the class. So that's that's basically what I think. I see. So the general skill is just to basically don't be afraid. It's courage. Don't be afraid. Yeah. In this case, math uh, <laughs> is the thing which is which uh, people tend to be afraid. That's a great one lesson. Um, uh, this is just a, almost a repetitive question, maybe, mm-hmm. but I guess. Did you ever have a moment where you almost came to like a crossroads where you questioned uh, about the path you were taking necessarily? Because you had some jumps, right? Mm -hmm. I was assuming uh, maybe after your, after what, like you said, one of your mentors uh, definitely influenced Mm -hmm. you um, in dealing with understanding or having a respect for like experimental data and matching to that. And then Mm -hmm. like you going to Amazon and, and uh, I mean like working there, like, would, uh, how did you, like, finally make the decision to exit? Or, like, just basically situations where you had two options uh, and you chose, like, almost like your personality match or the fulfillment. Like, mm-hmm. How did you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, so that's, I think, uh, people tend to think of it as a very big deal. Oh, I am at a crossroads and I should choose A versus B. Well, it is in some sense definitely a big deal. I, I won't I won't deny that. But uh, but uh, in kind of the larger schema of things, if you if you really look at it, right? Means, means let's be frank. Life is life is not that long, right? Means life is short, right? Means do something what you enjoy, right? Means wherever you can kind of derive that, right? So means you know if I am in a high pressure job, but I am not enjoying that high pressure job. Then, then you know, uh, consider doing a pivot. Right means, of course, means uh, there are many different constraints. Right means you can have financial constraints, you can have family-based constraints, so all sorts of things there. Right, and so, so yes, I do understand those things, and of course, I also have to kind of deal with those things. Right, because uh, you know, let's be frank. Like Amazon, as you might imagine, would pay a lot more than how much you will get paid as a professor, for example. So, uh, so it's it's basically what do you value more, right? Do you value time more? Do you value money more? And there is no correct answer, right? For every person, for every individual, there would be a different, in some sense, right answer. Right. So like means everybody values things a little differently, right? They would be like, uh, at least, you know, at this stage in my career, I don't really care about time. I want to first make some amount of money once I've kind of crossed that much and then I can worry about that. Right. Me, it just so happens, uh, you know, uh, 
I like to, you know, to, to keep my interest in something, right? Means I, I need to be engaged with that thing more, right? So uh, it just so happens, right? Means uh, running off the shelf algorithms was not my interest. So I was like, I should not be wasting my time on that. Instead, you know, do do something like, like professor job is ideal, right? You can, you can pick the problem you want to work on, like research, right? And so, and then you, right? If you don't like that problem, you can switch. Nobody is going to complain. Nobody at all is going to complain. Right? So, so that's that's wonderful. You know, that's just the right thing. So I see. Would you say that's influenced maybe by your first professor? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. You were given free reign, right? So is that kind of like what you wanted to return yeah. to? Home adventure home? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, so the great thing is he was or he is not a micromanager, okay? Mm -hmm. So he's never going to be saying, do this, 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 right? He will let you explore and whatnot, which in some, you know, it gives you a lot more ideas, right? To, right. you know, otherwise you are always seeking, give me give me a problem to work on. I don't need that. I can, I can work on my own problems. So. And I have plenty of problems. <laughs> All pun intended. So I see. <laughs> Good one. I hope everybody else gets that. All right. Hmm. I guess I'll summarize real quick. It seems like your, your advice is just follow your heart. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Life is short. Life is short. Enjoy. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So uh, now let's talk about something more. Okay. So we could do a funny anecdote question where you could do like open, interesting questions in unsupervised learning outlook for future, like near term future. What would you like to do first? Uh, I don't know funny anecdote from the students. Yeah, all right. Yeah, but so, I, I don't know what anecdote. Is. Well, like funny story, like uh, once. Uh, I don't even remember. You remind me of you. Maybe you have been in my classes. Uh, I mean, I got a bunch, but. Remind me. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do my own, but but just remind me. I go through like so many things. I just don't remember. I'm not sure. Sometimes Bill's just not paying attention. You call on him, and then, well, he posts on his Instagram a lot. Where it's just like, oh, I messed this up by accident in front of the whole class. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm probably going to leave that out oh, of the really? podcast. I should follow him on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> on his stories, yeah. Or like, yeah, like things like that. Like for okay. when I was doing the lectures for DBScan, he posted. He was like, oh, look, William's teaching. Uh, he was taking photographs? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, obviously not. That's like against <laughs> university policy or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's proprietary material. Anyway, uh, I don't really have any anecdotes. Like, let, let me. Well, I mean, your your jokes really? made up for it. It was just to add some humor, and but you 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 know the Jesus saving thing has probably has probably <laughs> done it there. <laughs> uh, let let's do the other one. Though. All right, all right. So um, well, okay. So I guess like as a professor, you know, you're in like almost like a unique kind of uh, as a professor in the field of unsupervised learning, you know, you have a almost like a unique perspective on your field. Uh, so I guess like we kind of want a little bit more of that insight or just to at least understand what you see. 
So I guess, what are some open, interesting questions in unsupervised learning that you think about? And uh, what is your outlook on progress in unsupervised learning for like near-term future? You can you can specify the, the, the forecasting horizon that you're doing. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, the, so the, I guess the blessing or the curse of like today's how kind of machine learning is going is essentially we have data, okay? We mm -hmm. have tons and tons and tons of data, okay? There's, there's absolutely no shortage of data, okay? You want to collect data, you means you want to collect like voice data, you just throw a few microphones here and there and you can just start collecting. Right. Uh, so data is not a problem, but some sort of a quality data is definitely a problem, right? Means what would quality mean in this particular case? Suppose you want to design some sort of a speech understanding, speech recognition type of a problem. Okay, you collected all these, uh, you know, voice recordings, but, you know, you, you need some sort of label information as well, right? Mm -hmm. Now, somebody sitting down and labeling each particular you know, conversation which occurred, maybe you want to do sentiment analysis, you want to say whether a person was happy while saying it or angry while saying it, or, you know, the content itself, was it a positive con uh, content or a negative content, right? right. Or oh, the weather is going to be very, uh, you know, bad today. In some sense, it has this kind of a negative content, right? Like, like today won't be a good, good weather, right? Mm -hmm. So, so getting the labeled data is always high quality label data is always a problem mm -hmm. and so the kind of the, the 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 beauty about unsupervised learning is that it will try to uh it will try to understand figure out patterns from data without having the the label information so mm -hmm. how much squeeze you can get out of your data and so as you can imagine um, because of this uh, kind of uh, uh, aspect to unsupervised learning that you don't really require labels uh, it is actually gaining a lot of traction uh, these days okay so in the kind of the past decade or so i would say you know as deep learning models uh, are becoming more and more popular uh, we started collecting more and more data because it can consume it, but we all have to label it because that's how generally a deep learning model works. It's a supervised learning model. You need need label information as well for it to work properly. But now I would say uh, kind of this decade in some sense is the kind of the right decade where unsupervised learning can help in you know consuming properly, uh, figuring out the patterns for. So unsupervised learning in general is gaining traction. That's one thing I'm saying, right? And so mm -hmm. the the drive which I'm seeing in the in in terms of research, like what other different people are doing, is basically all the popular models which are there. Okay, deep learning happens to be one of them, which is quite popular. Uh, they all these models they are actually uh, you know some unsupervised version of them is getting. Okay. Now it can it you know whatever we classically say unsupervised it doesn't need to be that way and I won't go into the technical details uh, but uh, there are there is like a hybrid way which can be called as self-supervised. Okay, 
So in some sense, you get unsupervised data, you get unlabeled data, okay? Like non-annotated data, that's what unlabeled means. But then it will internally label it the way it wants to, you know, whatever its current understanding is. And then now it has a kind of a labeled version and it can kind of go from there. So it is doing supervision kind of by itself. Okay. So, so these kinds of hybrid techniques are uh, proving out to be very successful in, 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 in machine learning. Uh, one, one, one classic example for that is what is known as a GAN, G-A-N, which is a generative adversarial network, a kind of a deep learning model. Uh, where basically what it is doing is, uh, in some sense, you know, you get, uh, uh, you get your data and to, to understand the kind of the salient aspects of the data, um, it's unlabeled data, okay? And so to understand the salient aspect, what it's gonna do is it's gonna generate fake data, okay? And, okay, so it has the kind of the real data and it is trying to mimic that data in some sense. So it is gonna generate data by itself. And so uh, it is gonna try to figure out, one aspect of it is the generator part. The other aspect is basically to be able to distinguish whether this part of the data is the the, the the fake generated data or is it the actual real data which okay. can it discriminate mm-hmm. between the two parts right because if it can discriminate that means it hasn't understood what the true data is because it cannot generate it indistinguishable right means that you are able to do that. so you can go back and forth back and forth you can basically you know the generator part is becoming better and better in making fake data look like real data and you know the, the discriminator part is mm-hmm. trying to distinguish between the you know the the fake versus the real data in which case you understand the underlying data process uh, better and that then can have better applications in, you know all sorts of uh, you know like like in face recognition you know speech recognition whatnot I see. So, so this self-supervised little game that it plays, it uh, uh, what would be a great analogy for it? Like on the spot, you use your lecturing skills. Like a game? You already said it's a game. <laughs> okay. Is that okay, what you no, wanted no, to get to me? I, I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was thinking oh, yeah, counterfeits, cop- yeah, like uh, cops and robbers. I, I'm I'm not that fast um, in thinking. So. <laughs> oh. But you're a professor. You should have like enormous brain bandwidth. Yes, counterfeit. Agree. <laughs> uh, well, um, I guess what do you think are like, like progress that things will be achieved in maybe a one year or two years or like three years, like things that you that you think are maybe uh, problems that will be solved in, in these kind in, of timeframes in, in unsupervised like, learning or machine learning. Then? Yeah, just like. Uh, yeah, like open problems or like things that you think, uh, like, for example, like, I think one, one lesson you talked about, uh, like RP, uh, the, the class of problems that can be solved by randomized algorithms and, and the ones that cannot be solved by randomized algorithms, like, well, like well, that can be de-randomized. Like, are, are the, are they, does the randomization actually give it a, a boost in like performance? Like uh, when will this kind of idea be proved? Yeah, yeah very and, and I wish I knew the answer to that one, but but I don't. Like, like when will it be solved? I don't even know that. So, uh, 
Yeah. No, like low hanging fruit, maybe, or like yeah, things that you think. So you know the difference between, you know, artificial intelligence, like the artificial general intelligence, right? So like, like uh, so so this yeah. is how I put it actually, right? So it's very easy to create an expert system. Okay, an expert system basically some mm-hmm. a system which can which on a specific particular topic can can solve uh, can give you the right solution. Okay, that that would be an expert, system, right? right. So maybe a disease diagnosis system. Maybe you give like a, maybe biopsy images and so on, and then it will predict uh, you know mm-hmm. what is the likelihood whether you know certain condition is there or not. Okay, it's yeah. definitely an expert system. Right. Uh, a a contrast to an expert system would be something like common sense and so Mm -hmm. what we have learned as a community uh machine learning community is that expert systems are a lot more or i should say a lot is are a lot easier to create than Mm -hmm. giving computers Mm -hmm. common sense okay like means you would be like It can it can solve these very complicated math equations, but it can't even kind of walk properly or something like that. How the hell is it going to work? Right? So so mm-hmm. that's that's basically what I mean by you know common sense like don't don't ram into things while walking, right? Uh, those things. Anyway, right. so what is that to do with what what can be achieved? Right? I mean, I'm telling you the holy grail here, right? With mm-hmm. like a 50 year right, or a hundred yeah. year, and I don't even know whether that's even achievable or not. But but some people contend it is probably mm-hmm. achievable in 20. I doubt it, but whatever. Uh, but but in a more short-term right. thing, uh, kind of a more holistic approach to the problem, not to the level of this expert system versus general system, but uh, but uh, more in terms of how you are organizing data to mm-hmm. kind of give it into a system. Mm-hmm. That actually is gaining traction, which uh, and I'll give you a specific example. It's going to hopefully sense uh, right, right. Uh, that is gaining traction which i think has some potential okay so there is something called uh, a um, uh, graph neural network or a graph convolution network or a gcn okay now the idea behind it is basically why look at data as an unstructured object Okay, like like you know, uh, observation one, observation two, observation three. Right? I mean, there might be relationships between observations. Okay, uh, or as we put it in machine learning, it may not be I F T. Okay, independent and identically for, for, for the math aficionados. Uh, but anyway, uh, so rather than giving data in a kind of unstructured way and do something with it, like whatever prediction you want to do. Perhaps there is some underlying structure. So you are looking at the problem in a more holistic way, like a kind of a global way. In this particular case, what was going to happen is the problem perhaps looks like a graph. Okay, so graph mm-hmm. can then uh, basically observation one and observation two. If there is some sort of a relationship, then you will basically connect it uh, with some sort of a weighting, saying, "Oh, this is the you know the, the similarity between these these objects." Now. As you might imagine, as you might think, right, means that if you have this additional piece of information, if the similarity piece of information is also known, then you can get more squeeze out of your prediction. As in, you know, you you get better predictions, right? 
uh, and that has been observed that yes that's the case right and so the challenge has been okay how can you make you know traditionally what you know these algorithms which are more unstructured whether it be a uh, support vector machine or whether it be a deep neural network or what not how to actually give it this kind of a more more advanced structure okay and so so this brings the you know this kind of a graph uh, convolutional network as i was saying and it can now give better answers now how is it giving better answers like like what can be potential applications where we can kind of explore it right so you you, you can imagine you can imagine something like uh, in in a natural language processing right so uh, here is a very simple example uh, you know uh, okay we are all you know students or we were students in my case uh, a little bit while ago right so no, no, it's a, it's a bad application, but I'll, I'll still go with it, right? So, so it's, uh, uh, it's uh, how should I put it? Nobody wants to actually read or study, right? Means, means there's just way too much to read the material, right? So if you can, if you can, if you can summarize the novel which is assigned to you and somehow, you know, spark notes if if the the website is blocked or something like that right so so it would be nice to be able to come up with a a summary of a document now uh, of course document summary is not you know i mean this is more of a you know a kind of a not exactly malicious but like a cheap ish application right oh i don't want to read the whole document i just want to read something but but you might imagine right means you want to figure out what is then what are the important aspects to a particular document because that could actually help in terms of doing search right I mean suppose you have like huge corpus and you want to kind of search for it. so uh, now these sentences in a document they are all kind of related to each other right and so uh, if you if you model the data in some sense, let's say at a sentence level, like sentence one, sentence two, sentence three, and so on. But if it is all unstructured, as in, you know, there are no relationship between the entities who are participating in the in the whole story, whatever the story, whatever kind of document it happens to be, as opposed to if you can think of like the relationships between the different entities, what they are doing, what kind of actions on, right? So giving it in a kind of a graph format would be a better understanding of the whole structure and then figure out who the, because we are trying to do summary, right? Who the important actors are, what the important actions which were taken, okay? And so, so this is kind of gaining traction and this is all in some sense unsupervised, okay? Uh, coming from this graph neural network application. With, with, maybe it's the natural language processing or maybe just uh, unsupervised learning in general uh, but your previous anecdote about teaching how you try to make difficult things seem simpler seems like there might be some kind of analogy there between your teaching advice and the work that you do uh, you make unstructured weird Easy. complicated things yes. simpler 
hopefully that came across to okay. like i'm how i'm explaining things in this uh, podcast in this next section we asked professor verma to help us understand one of his research results as well as a few fun questions to round off the interview but you have to ask the question now okay all right we're going to ask this question okay so you you know you're very well known for holding the uh, the best result right aren't is is the best result right in the in distance preserving uh, embeddings for best theoretical result yeah best theoretical result so. in general and like distance preserving embeddings in general and dimensional manifolds uh i guess that's a very long long thing to say <laughs> could you try to explain that to us and i think there's a connection to a very mm-hmm. famous mathematician uh who you you were telling a story about because you know he's got a great movie too well the movie was not by john yeah, nash but on john nash but, <laughs> uh, but yeah uh who's the actor russell crowe yeah russell crowe the gladiator guy the gladiator guy anyway so 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 what is this result about yeah so there's some some this is basically a crackpot result essentially and and the the result basically says something along the line of uh the form so so what what do, so one thing you want to do in uh, machine learning is to be able to uh uh somehow summarize your data because there are actually connections if you can come up with a good summary then you can actually do decent prediction okay mm-hmm. so this this very vague statement can actually be formalized and can actually be in some sense proved so 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 one way of being able to do good prediction is to be able to come up with good summary right that's basically right now summary can mean multiple things right so maybe you are looking at a thousands of different observations and a summary might be instead of looking at thousands you are only looking at hundreds of observations right so that would be one kind of summary which in some sense is capturing all the you know the variety in thousands of things another kind of being able to summarize is not in terms of the observations but the number of measurements you are making per observation okay so uh, the simplest example i can think of is basically you know so let's say you are taking a photograph right means right. now everybody loves their you know fancy dslr or drls whatever dslr right dslr camera right, right. Yeah, see. So as you can imagine, I certainly do not follow that and I do not have a DSLR camera, right? Okay. But 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 what do you do, right? The uh you take these huge uh photographs like like you know hundreds or tens of megapixels, right? Yeah. I, I don't know what the modern numbers are. Let's no, say I, 20. I don't, know. I don't know either, but they're huge, yeah. So so, so but let's say 20 megapixels or whatever, right. right? Now, technically this is exactly one observation right one photograph is one observation right means mm-hmm. but you took multiple measurements for that observation right you took let's say 20 megapixels of recordings right. for that single you know whatever scene you wanted to capture the photo which you wanted to take yeah. right so another way of summarizing is can the same the whatever the richness in this single observation there is mm-hmm. rather than recording in this case whatever 20 megapixels come out to be which is 20 million recording of numbers right mm-hmm. uh, instead of 
that many numbers can you actually have the same quality or be able to maintain whatever quality you want to maintain but actually be able to just record you know just a few thousand pixels or maybe just a few hundred pixels or something like that. Mm-hmm. okay so that's the kind of difference i'm making rather than so the number of observations remain in some sense the same but the number of measurements you are making per observation can actually be something mm-hmm. okay and so uh, so again the, it has connections to if you can if you can if you can compress or if you can actually summarize then you can actually be able to better predict that's right. there are those connections so so then the question becomes is okay how can i achieve this kind of compression how can i actually do fewer measurements and still be able to get like the the, the richness the variety there okay right. uh, as you might imagine a direct impact is obviously it will occupy less space right means if if you if you measure fewer things then you have to store fewer things mm-hmm. and still be able to keep the you know the kind of information so like back to the camera analogy it's almost like jpeg right um, exactly. lossy right. compression so, yeah in that case it is lossy but if it is if the loss is imperceptible then mm. it doesn't really matter to you right? right so because you can't really even perceive that right so uh so absolutely correct right and so so the the nash result or the the result which which william is talking about here right so is is basically a result on for certain types of data how can you actually uh how can you actually do uh compression or the you know the more technical term which we use is this thing called dimensionality reduction mm-hmm. okay so so what you can say is if the data follows certain properties okay if it has certain types of structure to it then uh you know uh you can do certain things and then you can you can you, you can achieve this kind of compression or dimensionality so we all always kind of go back to mathematics for you know data modeling and prediction and so on and so one very uh, useful way to model you know interesting properties about a particular data set happens to be this thing called a manifold okay mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially a uh, mathematical object which is some sort of a, like a you can think of it as like a curvy type of a surface Right. Um, uh, a donut kind of looking thing. A donut, yeah, like a donut would be another way, right? Means or or just just any kind of a you know like a like a rug going up and down. I don't know. <laughs> so so yeah, donut donut is a perfectly fine example, right? So uh, and believe it or not, right? People might be thinking like non-machine learning people might be thinking, how the hell does my data look like a donut? We are not talking about. pictures of a donut we are saying <laughs> like it's very difficult to un- explain if, uh, if if you don't have like any machine learning background but but uh, but but the kind of the structure of data happens to be like each observation is like a is like a point on a donut in some sense right? so so mm. each photograph is a, is a is a crumb of your donut in some sense right so anyway so uh, but believe it or not there are types of even image data which believe it or not do look like donuts in 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 the sense in in when when you are actually uh, doing these 
So, mm-hmm. so these things are called manifolds. Whenever you have this kind of a curvy-ish type of an object, in this case with holes, right? It could have holes, it could have many holes, it could have no holes at all. And the question then is, okay, so suppose I have this object and it is residing in some, you know, high dimensional space, which is basically coming from, you know, the number of different measurements. Okay. So you, you took a bunch of different measurements and the structure looks like a donut. Okay. Of, of in totality when you took all the energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I compress that? Okay. And so, uh, so, so Nash actually looked at this particular problem. Of course, he was hopefully not thinking about donuts at that time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but, you know, it is essentially that you have this kind of a manifoldy type of a nonlinear wavy donuty type of an object in some sort of a high dimensional space. How can I actually compress the space and still be able to keep the information, you know, some important information about the donut, like the structure of the object. Right. And uh, so, so he he came up with in I think yeah in 1954 he and in 1956 then later on he has two results uh, came up with a what is known as a very famous set of results it's called Nash embedding theorem okay mm-hmm. which is basically talking about how can you do this kind of approach. right and uh, so that's there. Uh, but the thing is, uh, his 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 result is a kind of a mathematical construct, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in computer science, typically what happens is you have a limited amount of data, and you have limited amount of computational power. Right, means you want to be able to have your computer finish doing the job, essentially right. the process. And so, uh, so essentially, uh, what I was able to do was when you have like limited pieces of information, limited data, limited computational power, and so on, how can you actually do a similar type of an embedding, similar type of a compression as what Nash did, mm-hmm. uh, which is applicable to you know the kinds of problems which we encounter in machine learning? So that's the that's mm-hmm. the, this particular result. I see. So I guess like you try to, you're able. So this is more of a theoretical result, right? Rather than, uh, um, rather than something that can be easily implemented. Yeah. So it is. It is. It is practical from a mathematical point of view. It's highly practical, but but uh, from from actual like coding perspective, it is still a theoretical construct. Okay. And and what else needs to be there for the coding part? maybe be more realizable uh, yeah that's a great question so uh so to, to make it actually practical you know kind of a lot more things need to happen we, we, we certainly need data and space i would say like like mm-hmm. you know like bigger memory bigger computation aspect and whatnot but just throwing you know computational power and space requirements is kind of not enough uh, there are some some actual technical challenges which which mm-hmm. also need to kind of overcome. So more more practically, the way you do the compression in this particular case, uh, going a little bit more in technical detail, 
Right. Basically, you know, you started off with this donut in this high dimensional many measurement space. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is you can get away with fewer measurements, right? So essentially what happens is that Nash will, you know, his construction basically is, is going to basically like basically scrunch the entire donut down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it called? Like, crunchy, you know what a crunchy is? Yeah, yeah, the ones that people used to tie their hair back. Exactly, right? So you start with like a... And I guess it's good that we started off with a donut because now, you know, you want to tie your hair back, right? So, so there will be some sort of a hole in there right, right? Right. kind of tie. Right? But it doesn't look like a perfect donut, right? It looks like this squiggly, up and down, very, very scrunchy style of... A, there is a donut that looks like that, though. Yeah. You know, okay, the... sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I'm saying is, but what is a scrunchie, right? It is a donut. It's just not, uh, it's a, not a very smoothish donut. It's a very scrunchie-ish donut. Because right. it's scrunchy. Uh, so, so the kind of the, 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 the technical problem with Nash's reserve uh, for, for, for machine learning is that, okay, this, this compression is going to happen, but the global structure the donity structure, the smoothness of the donity structure is going to actually get, in some sense, destroyed. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so so that is inherited in my technique as well, as in even in my technique, because I'm trying to follow kind of Nash's way of doing things. So it will make it look very scrunchy-ish type of a way, mm-hmm. which is not useful for machine learning you know, direct. Okay. Hmm. So certain properties are going to get maintained. Obviously, that's why you did the whole thing. Okay. So information right. is getting preserved, but a different kind of information, not this smoothness kind of information. Okay. Mm-hmm. The kind of information which gets preserved is basically what is known as the nearest neighbor structure and what is known as the uh, the, the interpoint geodesic distance structure. Okay. Basically, mm-hmm. distances between different points on this donut will be uh, preserved, but the global structure of the donut is going to get destroyed. And so to make it more practical, you know, so that, you know, computers can actually do it easily, you want to keep some smoothness. Yeah, that technical challenge needs to be overcome. I see. So figuring a way to include smoothness into this kind of model, I guess, is different. And if you have any ideas, Please contact me. <laughs> yes, this is an open call. Open yeah. call, guys. Open call, exactly. <laughs> so. Maybe you can get other people to do your work. So again, less work for you, more party time for you as well. Exactly. See, always keep the big picture in mind, as I have always said, right? The big picture mm-hmm. is ultimate goal, partying all the time. So, <laughs> Of course, of course. Perfect. Okay, now um, we're going to move on to a student-submitted question. Now... This is a fun one. Um, so we have this thing at Columbia. It's a, it's a confessions kind of post page. Um, there's a question here, question 3052. It was also submitted by another student. So this is a high in demand question. <laughs> is Professor Verma married? I don't see any person being close to worthy of this man. Uh, so are you married? So the person is absolutely correct. Nobody is worthy yet, and so the answer is no. So. Ah. <laughs> All right. Perfect. And now we have a. Which um, brings there's another open call, but we will not talk about that open call. <laughs> yes, another open call. <laughs> he likes to party. 
let's see. Hmm. What would you like students who uh, who have never met you to see you as? Like what kind of person almost? Like a fun-loving guy, party person, you know, <laughs> uh, professor, or someone approachable? Like what do you think uh, you want that vibe to be? What do you want students to recognize you as? Because they might, you know, pre- like project some scary otherworldly, you know, ideas onto onto their head of, of you. Yeah, so I think uh, I mean, this is the same when I guess I was a student, you know, like you you kind of always think your professors to be, you know, these uh, different beings who are unapproachable or whatnot, right? Means, uh, I, I would say, just not for me, but for everybody, right? Uh, I mean, they are humans, mm-hmm. as in they are approachable and they are not always like, you know, like these stiff, rigid people who don't want to talk to you, okay? The reason that aura is projected, okay? So many people, professors do that and sometimes I also have to do that basically mm-hmm. because of, you know, uh, just the sheer volume of people who, you know, you, you kind of get to interact with. Like, again, the whole point of becoming a professor was what? So that you get some free time so that you can sit down and think about the problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is an ideal, I don't know whether achievable or unachievable, I won't say that, goal, <laughs> which, which you are kind of going to. So it's and theoretical, so, not uh, experimental. Exactly. Right? So in theory, everything works. Right? I mean, you're a professor, so you get all the free time in the world. Right? But in practice, you know, like, like uh, you, know, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word disturbing, but, you know, <laughs> people people are coming. All right? so, so, so professors are human, so they can get annoyed, right? Means uh, your specific interaction might be a negative one because of that. But, but you know, uh if you can imagine the same you know if you, if somebody is getting bugged like 50 times a day you know they they, they will be on the edge you know, on the mm-hmm. edge, right? uh but uh, you know so no matter what you may have heard about anybody not just me right so uh i would like to talk to you but even though i may say that right now don't talk to me or i have like an angry face and you know, I'm showing an angry face. It's just because the current local circumstance happens to be that way, right? Mm-hmm. But, but you know, given time, I would be more than happy chatting with. Uh, All right. So approachable. Great. All right, guys. He's approachable. Yes. Uh, single. <laughs> and, yes, exactly. And, and looking for for answers to his questions. So. Yes, exactly. That's what I meant by available. That I'm available to do research. Exactly. exactly exactly all right so this is the uh surprise question final question have you ever heard of nardwar i know nerf war oh no 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 basically nardwar is just an interviewer who's basically uh this is almost like um he he goes to uh, rappers or just people who are who are interesting or famous and, and he asks like he finds something deep down from their past okay yeah, he likes like the location of a coffee shop they used to go to or mm. the name of a childhood friend Mm-hmm. We have a Nardwart-like type question. It's not even a question. It's just it's four words. Uh, these are the four words. Uh, little Johnny has cirrhosis. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, let's. Can you tell us about that? Like, <laughs> interesting, interesting. So. Good, I remember the this thing, like like the, the reference. Uh, so so basically, uh, 
in my previous life, I guess as an undergrad, I, I, I used to program a lot. And so, so I actually took a course on game programming. So yes, I have actually created a fully functional game. Okay, there were, I think, yeah, we, we had like four members in our team. Mm-hmm. And so the requirement for this particular course is an awesome course uh, taught at uh, UC San Diego, obviously, and I think it is still taught. Uh, uh, it's the most popular course, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, for for computer science uh, students. Uh, uh, and and basically, the professor's job is, in some sense, very easy. They will say, uh, "Well, you have to create a game in ten weeks, and then uh, you know, and then you know." Uh, there are some requirements, and the requirements is that it needs to be a real-time multiplayer uh, game, essentially. Okay, and so, and and that's about it. Those are the those are the conditions which need to be met. And the final exam basically would be that uh, there would be like a public uh, presentation, and the audience members, you know, which will be you know other students who have never taken the or whatnot, they will participate and they will be the players in your game and they will play the game. So, so that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of the final evaluation. All the game concepts, everything, design, uh, programming, obviously, uh, you have to do all by yourself. So as you might imagine, it's a quite an intense course uh, and you learn a lot, right? Means as you might imagine, right, you have to design uh, maybe your own physics engine if you're not using a, a kind of a game engine or something like that. So what our team ended up deciding on was the game whose title was Little Johnny Has Cirrhosis. Okay. Now, what is this game, right? You need to have a little bit more content, right? So mm-hmm. have you seen this movie called Fantastic Voyage? It's a very old movie. It's a black and white movie. Definitely not, not, not for me. Maybe some other people uh, have uh, seen it. Yeah, so I'm also not from that generation. People think I am. But no, I'm not. Uh, uh, have you seen the movie or heard of the movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Okay, that's Sounds a very nice movie. That's a comedy. I think that's an 80s or if not 80s and maybe 70s, but I think it's an 80s movie. Okay, so that's okay. a fun movie. Anyway, the concept of uh, Fantastic Voyage, the movie, the black and white movie, is mm-hmm. essentially, is, yeah, so I think there is a patient who has some sort of a kind of a inoperable brain tumor or some, some sort of a this mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but essentially, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot fix his whatever ailment he has, I think brain tumor, um, uh, by from outside, like you cannot like cut open the the, you know, the head and the skull and whatnot, right? right. Basically, the patient is gonna die. Okay. Okay. So so they come up with a solution because this is like an advanced technology, whatever, right? They came up with a solution. Why don't we miniaturize the people? Okay. Mm-hmm. It, they will be in a ship. There will be like four people, I think, in a ship or whatnot. Right. They will completely miniaturize it. Uh, and then they will inject this in a in the person's bloodstream, okay? And then basically, uh, you know, the ship is going to kind of flow around through like different organs and whatnot, and it will reach the brain. And then you know, there's some you know they will they will shoot and whatnot, uh, and and kill the wherever the the tumor is you know expanding right. to and whatnot. And then and then it will and then they come. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this particular technology is that they 
are going to be in this shrunk down stage only for one hour exactly right? mm. or some limited time okay after that right. you know you go back to the regular size right so if the if the people are still inside you know the the, the things start expanding of course the person is going to explode right the, the poor right. person that's anyway, not good yeah so so our game kind of borrows from that essentially you know so the storyline for our game is okay now that you know the movie the storyline for mm-hmm. our game is that you know this student has partied a lot and has you know has kind of uh, has been drinking a lot or what not or what not eventually as you know uh, if you if you if you drink a lot you know you can potentially contract cirrhosis essentially it's a, mm-hmm. it's a disease of the liver like it disrupts function right right and you party so, too much right Huh? If you party yeah, because, too much. because you party too much, you yeah, of course. So, so it, it has a personal connection, but that's a different issue. Of course, of course. Yeah. So, uh, so this person has cirrhosis. The guy's name is Johnny, and we just call him Little Johnny. All right? right. So the guy has cirrhosis, and now what do you want to do? You want to actually, uh, you know, there will be a mini miniaturized ship which will kind of go through the bloodstream, and it will go through like so the stomach and then you know maybe the lungs and so on and eventually you are reaching in our case to the liver mm-hmm. where a kind of a big in our case there's a big virus which is like 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 holding the liver and you're fighting this virus right? it's a game right mm-hmm. so you right. and so it was more of a cooperative game in the sense like there will be four because i said it's a multiplayer game right so right. so there will be four people uh, or like uh, you know four people manning four different ships okay they all mm-hmm. are fighting all the different you know you know so white blood cells are attacking you obviously right because there's right, a foreign body you're, you're invaders your body yeah invaders. because we are invaders in some sense of the body right so so but we don't want to kill the white blood cells too many because you know because, because of the you know the, the immune system is right of course of course and there are a bunch of viruses floating around in the in the, in the different uh, you know in the bloodstream and in the mm-hmm. stomach and so on so basically the game has like four levels or four chambers right the first mm-hmm. will be that's the the lung chamber then the the, the, the stomach chamber like right? slowly you are going towards the liver chamber mm-hmm. okay and as you might imagine right so the, there are tiny little power ups in the game you can you can get like more more things to shoot things with and you will right. have different things happening and there are these mini little uh, you know uh, bad viruses you're fighting along the way mm-hmm. so you do 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 and eventually you you go to the last level you buy uh, fight the big boss and then you win the game and then you're done so so that's what the the little johnny has zero coming from huh. did you, you know, know you that mentioned... or uh... yeah of course of course we did the research oh you, know? you did we the did... research so i we didn't did lie. okay that's good <laughs> of course i see uh, did you download no, no. the game did you play the game <laughs> Actually, that was one of the other things I was going to ask. Can we download this game? Is it available and can we play it? Uh I think it should be available. Uh I don't know. I haven't I haven't gone to the website in a very long time. All right. Um yeah. We are going to try to download this game. Yeah, but I don't have the code with me anymore, so that's unfortunate. Also, when when you reference those two older movies about people going inside other people. <laughs> um there is uh, one that will relate to possibly my generation or uh, maybe a similar generation is uh, the Magic School Bus series. Uh, it's I like have a, no clue what you just said, but okay. <laughs> okay, basically, it's just a school bus with this mm-hmm. teacher 
and in one episode they shrink down everybody and go inside the boy a boy named ralphie mm. uh so they're searching up inside mm. ralphie you know mm. fever is crushed keeps him at home so she's like let's bring the school to him mm. and they go inside of him which is a little strange but um this was entertainment in my childhood mm-hmm. it was really great well i think uh was that a good question? Was that were you surprised? Did you not expect yes, that? Yeah, I was I was surprised. But the good thing I remembered. Otherwise, I'll be like I I don't know what the hell you're talking about. So. <laughs> Maybe I, yes. that's how I should have answered. So. Oh man. <laughs> but but uh, yes, we did do our research, and sure. uh, and uh, that's it in terms of all the questions. So uh, thank you so much for uh, agreeing. Thank to you this for having me. Yeah, it was very entertaining, at least for me. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we covered a lot of aspects about yourself, and I think uh, at least anybody watching now definitely understands the professor, Nicole Verma, party animal, party you know, animal, explainer, <laughs> explainer, uh, gamer, yes, and available to do and research. available exactly to do research. <laughs> yes, but thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. Very good. So that was our first guest, uh, Professor Nicole Verma, and the very first uh, Columbia Data Science Society podcast. Uh, we might come up with a better name for it. Um, currently, I'm open to ideas, as he is open to research ideas. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Hopefully, we're putting out on a bi-weekly basis. So in two weeks, you'll be able to see our next interview. I don't know who it is yet, but stay tuned.